Welcome to Unconditional Love Fellowship with Bishop Malcolm Smith. This is episode number 44, recorded April 2nd, 2013, He is Risen. This audio podcast is sponsored by Liquid Networks, providing quality, affordable websites and website hosting. We understand how the web works, so you don't have to. Get your free quote today by visiting www.liquidnetworksinc.com. And now, Bishop Malcolm Smith. The Lord be with you. And I want to share something with you today which might be very simple, but I believe it is of tremendous importance to every one of us. And actually, I believe that there's enough here that we might spend a few weeks here. And it's in Romans chapter 10 and in verse uh, 9. And Paul is speaking about the gospel. He's talking about uh, what is this gospel? What are we preaching? And how does it work? And then he comes to that moment where a person actually receives the righteousness of God. They receive his salvation. Verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. And then in the verse 12, he said, there's no distinction between the Jew and the Greek For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. For whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Okay, that that was the gospel that they preached back there in the first decades of the Christian church. And I suppose I'm, I'm coming here and I'm speaking very simply to people that I I believe you would not be here week after week unless you knew the Lord. Um, But I'm speaking to all of us. I'm asking the question, what is a Christian? In today's world, wherever it is you're listening, uh, in today's world there is a tremendous need to have that demarcation that this is a Christian. And this isn't. I mean, God bless the isn'ts. And we love them, we bless them, and we pray for them. But let's be clear, what is a Christian? And this text just told us. And let me say the obvious. I'm not going to stay here. I'm sure everybody would agree with me. But being a Christian, it's not that we're trying to follow the example of Jesus. We're not. That's not being a Christian. might be a a sort of nice idea or as a philosophy of life, but it's not being a Christian. Um, It's it's infinitely beyond that. I mean, I asked a person uh, some time ago what they thought being a Christian was, and they said, I asked the question, uh, what would Jesus do? Well, it's a jolly good question, but it's not being a Christian. That's not being a Christian. Um... Christianity is not that Jesus introduced a new law. There was the law of Moses, and then Jesus introduced his law, which was a far higher law. And now we're trying to keep that. We're trying to follow Jesus. We've adopted a Christian philosophy of life. No, that's not a Christian. Believe it or not, Christianity is not a new behavior system. It's not a new ethical system. It's not a list of behaviors. And you say, well, that chap is a Christian. No, that's not the case. Nor can I really shock some that we are not a people who believe in God. (laughs) Uh, 
you know, you hear it, uh, people just talk about God. Well, the, the devils believe, says the scripture, the devils believe in God and they tremble at the thought of it. Uh, so, so we're not people who just believe in God, nor are we members of a religion uh, that is called the church or Christianity or what have you. You see, because at its heart, what we're talking about is not a religion. It is the incredible relationship between the creature human and the creator. Uh, so if that's a Christian isn't any of those things. Then what is a Christian? We just read it here and let me read the heart of it again. He says it is the person who would confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, believing in their heart that God raised him from the dead. And that results in what the scripture calls righteousness, salvation. That's a Christian. They believe in their heart that is at the very core of their being, which dictates the outermost behaviors of their being. They believe in their heart that God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. That's it. And they confess that with their mouth. They, they're public about it, not in an obnoxious fashion, but they, they are very ready to make the statement that Jesus Christ is the Lord God ruler of all creation. Uh, that's a Christian. Now, at the heart of that statement is the resurrection, Jesus rising from the dead. That's the heart of it. If you, if you don't believe that in your heart, then uh, nice person, I'd like you maybe as a neighbor, but don't, don't say Christian, because Christian is all about the resurrection. And it's through the resurrection we know that he is the Lord, the, the man who is God. So just quickly, visit the resurrection Visit it. Let, let, let me stir up your minds by way of remembrance in case maybe we've forgotten some of the details. The, the, the event very early on that Sunday morning, and at the time I'm saying this, just over 2,000 years ago, very early on the Sunday morning, while it was still dark, here we are in a garden just outside of Jerusalem. Actually, it's a kind of a park. And in there is this great mass of rock, and in the rock is hewn out a, a sort of little chamber, you might call it, a, a little room. And in there is a slab, and it was on that slab that the body of Jesus had been laid. And that body of Jesus had been tortured to the extreme. Uh, if, if some persons had been tortured and bludgeoned as that body of Jesus had, they might even have died before they reached the cross. And then that tortured body was hung on the cross, which was the cruelest form of execution that the world ever came up with, where, where a person being suffocated because their arms are stretched and they can't breathe and their lungs go into spasm, and then they heave themselves up on the nails so they can breathe, and that goes on, and sometimes for terribly long time. While stripped naked, they are mocked by the crowd. That had happened. And in the midst of that, Jesus had deliberately given up his spirit. He went into death voluntarily out of the midst of that. And they took down that mangled body and they laid it in this tomb. It is the way the Jewish people buried 
They laid it on that slab inside that hewn-out room. And then there was an enormous stone outside the door. I mean an enormous stone. And there was a runway. And it took ten men to get that stone moving, pushing it until it hit the slope. And then it would slide down and cover the entrance to that room If it took 10 men to move it down, it probably would take 30 or 40 to push it up and open up the chamber. And that had happened. And now the the gang, and I have to use that word advisedly, because the temple leaders in Jerusalem were nothing more than a gang, a mafia, a mob, that they controlled the temple to their own advantage. And they had machined the crucifixion of Jesus. And now, it's amazing to me, they, the most wicked of men, under the guise of religion, they did their vile works. And they had heard Jesus say that he would rise on the third day. It's amazing, because the disciples who were with Jesus all the time, they didn't hear that. Jesus had said it to them many times, but it went straight over the top of their head. But those who hated him and tried to kill him, they had carefully recorded that, that this, this man that we've just crucified said that he would rise again on the third day, and convinced that his disciples had heard the same thing, they said, we must set a guard around the tomb in case his disciples come and steal the body and tell the world he rose from the dead. And so they went to Pilate, the the Roman authority in Jerusalem, and, and they told this, that the pilot had had it with these people. It'd be nothing but these people, these temple leaders, and it had been nothing but Jesus all weekend. And he says, for goodness sake, if you believe that, he said, you, you've got a God. There, there, there are soldiers attached to the temple. You've got your own God. Go, go and, and put a guard around the tomb to stop these, <laughs> what, 11 bedraggled fishermen who hadn't even got the guts to stay while he was arrested, and a few women, if you're afraid they are going to come and steal the body, set your armed guard and put on that great stone the seal of the temple authorized by Rome, And anybody who breaks in will execute them. Okay, go do it. And so it was. That temple guard now patrol through the night outside that tomb. I mean, really, it's a strange sight. I I think the guards were bored out of their mind. Guarding the dead? But going backwards and forwards with their spears at ready in case somebody came to push away that stone which they knew it would take half an army to push that stone. And the man inside is dead. But they're guarding his body. Backwards and forwards they go. And then very early on that Sunday morning It records, and they were the ones who recorded it. There was an earthquake that shook that garden and reverberated through Jerusalem. And suddenly there was a blazing light source angel. And that angel is the Greek word. The word means a messenger, an emissary. One who came from heaven, came from the invisible half of the universe, backed by all the power and authority of God. And that angel flipped that stone, broke the seal, and it rolled back from whence it came. Suddenly the gods are on their faces. They're they're terrified that they've never seen the like of this. 
and, and probably dropping their weapons, they, they just fled in all directions, leaving the tomb door wide open. And out of that rock face, out of that tomb, that room of death, Jesus came. He had risen from the dead. As the soldiers were fleeing through the garden park and vaguely finding their way back to Jerusalem, out from Jerusalem. Now, you've got to hear this story because there's a lot of comings and goings and uh, it, it looks like people missing each other um, by minutes. So, this is the first. Out of the garden go the soldiers and from Jerusalem there comes this lone woman. We know her from the Gospels. Her name is Mary the Magdalene. And she was the one that Jesus had cast out seven devils. Her face is bloated and swollen with crying, with weeping. Within, she still is numb with despair. She cannot imagine a world where Jesus is not. She cannot imagine a world where Jesus has been crucified. And she is coming to the tomb. Why? I don't suppose she could have told you that. She was just going to the tomb. She's going to the gravesite just to be there, just to remember, just to worship the memory of the one she declared was Messiah, Son of God. And as she comes into the park and to where the tomb is, she of course sees that the tomb is empty. The stone is rolled back. It's just the gaping hole. And there's only one thing that could come to her terrified mind, and that is grave robbers. Somebody came since we were here, and they opened the tomb. They've stolen the body. And she spins on her heel and runs back through the darkness into the city where she wakens some of the men. This isn't a thing for women. We've got robbers. And, and she wakens Peter. I say waken. I, it's hard to believe that Peter had slept through the night or maybe slept at all since those terrible events of his crucifixion, but Peter and John are awakened or dragged out of their house to, to this woman who's nearly hysterical saying they've robbed the grave, they've robbed the grave. And so they begin to run. Mary runs and Peter runs, but John, who was around 15 years old at the time, he runs like a deer, young chap, and he gets into the park and he goes there to the rock face and he sees the entrance of the tomb open, but he doesn't. There's a certain respect and he stops at the door. He's not going to bust into the tomb. And anyway, he was the youngest. It wouldn't be right for him to be there ahead of Peter. Peter, a big bumbling fisherman, and he comes huffing and puffing after him. And he just blunders right into the tomb. Mary comes up, last of all. And there they are. They, they look around. And, and John saw something. This makes this story so real because obviously all these stories that come from this these hours, each given by the persons who were there, they really were there, the little details. John looked, and, and he, he's thinking, here's the grave clothes, grave clothes, that which they wrapped the body of Jesus in, they're just laying there on that rock shelf. But then, separately, there is the turban that they had wrapped around his head. And that was folded. Now, come on. 
If someone stole the body, they would have taken the body wrapped in its grave clothes. I mean, a, a robber doesn't have time to just carefully take off the clothes. Certainly not time to fold the turban. And John looked and he said, he reported it, he said he believed. He, he makes it plain he wasn't sure what he did believe, but he knew this was not a grave robbery. He knew that this, this must have been the act of God. And still confused, the two men come out of the tomb. And they don't know what to do. I mean, the body's gone. John can say it wasn't a grave robbery, but I don't think he could have put into words what he did believe. Not then. And the two men go back to Jerusalem, confused, hardly talking. Mary Magdalene stayed there. She, she, couldn't, she couldn't go. She's got to find some answer. And so she went into the tomb again. Only now... She sees on that shelf, at one end of the shelf where his feet had been, at the other end where his head had been, there sit two, two young men, two angels. And, and they look at her. She doesn't seem to be faced. She wasn't looking for angels. She was looking for Jesus. So what use is an angel? That's what it comes over as. Uh, but the angel looked at her and said, Woman, which was a high term of respect in those days. Woman, they, they said, uh, who, who are you looking for? I mean, what, what on earth are you doing in this room of the dead? Who, who are you looking for? And before she had a chance to answer, she was aware of someone behind her. And the best I can put it is she turns around and in now the first streaks of light in the sky, she sees the silhouette in the doorway of a man. And she thinks it's the gardener. Uh, but before she has a chance to say anything, the man says, who are you looking for? What are you doing here? And she then blurts it out. She says, they've taken away my Lord. I don't know where they've put him. She said, if you took him, Gardner, if you took him, please tell me where you put him so I can go and get him. Ah, the foolishness of love. She said, I will go and get him. That she, a woman, would try and lift the dead body. But that, that's where her head was at. And of course, the one standing in the doorway was Jesus. And he said, Mary. And no one in the universe said Mary like Jesus did. He is the one who had saved her out of the clutches of Satan. Seven tyrannical demons had held her. Jesus had delivered her. And she immediately recognized the voice and ran and grabbed a hold of him and said, Rabboni, which is Hebrew for my dear teacher. And he gently pushes her. He says, don't, don't cling to me. Don't cling to me. I think he was saying two things. One is it's, it's not going to be the same. It's not going to be the same. Well, what, what we did there in the Galilee and going from village to village and everything that you read of in the Gospels, he said, that's over. It isn't that you, you got me now. Let's go back and do it again. No, don't cling to me. A new era has begun. But also he said, I have not yet ascended. He had told them that his mission was to return to the Father, having accomplished his work. He said, essentially, I've done my work and I'm going to the Father. Don't stop me right now. 
But at that time, he said, I'm going to my father, but Mary, he's now your father. I've included you into the family. Go and tell my disciples. Go and tell them that I'm risen. And I'll meet with you. And she, I mean, overwhelmed with joy now, she rushes out of the tomb, running back to the disciples. While she's running back into Jerusalem, now the sun has risen. And another group of women, I don't know where they were staying over these days, but this other group of women, and they were very organized, they had with them spices and ointments and oils because it was the Hebrew custom to anoint the body of the dead. But of course there'd be no time after the crucifixion. And so they're now coming, and they have all of their ointments and their sweet-smelling spices, and they're experts at doing what they are coming to do. And now through the early morning sun, they are making their way to the tomb. And as they come toward the park, one of them suddenly remembers their mission and says, but who shall roll away the stone? We've got all the ointments and we've got all the spices, but who shall roll away the stone? And of course, they looked at each other blankly, but they kept going. And as they come into the park, they see what now others have seen. The hole in the rock face and the stone already rolled away. They are aghast, but they keep on going, and they go into the tomb. And there are the two angels, called young men. They were young, vibrant. And the word comes from the angel to these women, do not be afraid. Don't be afraid. In fact, there's the idea in the word there. Don't be overwhelmed. You're looking around. You're you're scared and you're beginning to be overwhelmed. Don't, don't. Said the angel, I know you are here looking for Jesus of Nazareth, the one who was crucified. I know that's why you're here. But I don't understand why you're here. Why do you look for the living among the dead? Why would you look for one who is alive in this room of death? He isn't here, said the angel. He has arisen, and he told you that, didn't he? He told you back in Galilee that this is what was going to happen. Now, you go. Tell everybody, tell everybody, and don't forget Peter, that's the message. Because Peter would hardly believe he's a disciple right now. The women, they're beside themselves. They can't talk. The words that are used in Scripture is bug-eyed, and I mean, they don't know what to say to each other. All they know is they've got to get back to Jerusalem and tell the disciples what has happened, and so they begin to run And as they run, suddenly Jesus is standing in front of them. And they fell on their knees and they grabbed his feet. And his response was, joy, joy. And as they worshipped him, he tells them the same, go and tell, and I will meet with you. And so they ran. And there is Mary babbling out her tale. How would you talk after this? And the women come and join her. The disciples, men, they said, yeah, it's women talk, women talk. Peter, John, we were at the tomb. We didn't see anything. Women talk. You know how it is. You've had a bad weekend. Don't know what happened to your hormones and you're just seeing things. Isn't it amazing? The temple guards, those chaps who had fled in the earthquake so earlier in the night, they've arrived and they've got Caiaphas out of bed and they're babbling their story. Would you? The temple, the people who crucified Jesus, they believed them. 
and said, we can't let this get out. So we're going to pay these guards an enormous amount of money to keep your mouth shut. And if anybody questions you, tell them. Those disciples came and stole the body. Ridiculous story. But they did. And they got the money. And they shut their mouth and they told that story. But it was Jesus who walked out of the tomb which an angel had opened with a flip of the wrist. That Jesus who came out of the tomb came out of the tomb in a body. Please understand. I, I can hardly tell you what kind of body. It was physical. It was a body that could eat food Chew it, swallow it, leave the bones on the side of the plate. He's going to do that in the evening meal the same day with the disciples. He's opaque. I mean, when Mary looked, she saw him. He himself said, touch me, handle me, put your hand inside the wound in my side. He said, I am not a ghost. I'm not a phantom. He physically rose from the dead and he walked out in a body that would make footprints in the sand alive but let me say alive as no one else had ever been alive because what we call alive Really and truly, when I come to the scripture, what we call alive, the scripture says, really, you're dead. It's, it's a life, I'm not questioning that, but it's a life that is shot through with death. It's not a very nice thing to say, but as soon as we're born, we're on our way to death. We live in a culture of death. We are the only creatures on the planet that organize within ourselves to wipe out our fellow creature. I think we're the only creatures that would ever then find delight in reading the death of our fellow humans, of watching violence and death and enjoying it. We are creatures who naturally speaking are the walking dead. We don't know what life is. This one who came out of the tomb, I say, is more alive than any creature that has ever walked on the planet. He is alive because he has conquered, defeated, what's the word? Unraveled death. Death died in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so he has a body, and the scripture is very plain, a body like ours, but a body that has been through death, conquered death, and now is above and beyond the touch of death. And so he's going to say, Uh, future from this point but reporting on this event Jesus himself said I am he who lives And, and that word would better be I am livingness I am the living one the source of life I am livingness and he goes on to say I was dead they're the most amazing words you'll ever I was dead I was dead How many people have you met who introduced themselves by saying, I was dead? No, he has been into the guts of death, and then having dissembled death, he rises out of it alive. And death cannot touch him anymore. Death cannot in any way be part of his existence. Alive. Oh, Lazarus was raised from the dead, but you see, he was raised from the dead to die again sometime. Jairus' daughter was raised from the dead too sometime. 
die again. They were resuscitated. Resuscitated. This word is not resuscitate. This is resurrection, which means having died, you are raised to life that is now incapable of being touched by death. The Jews of that day, the Old Testament Jews, they had a word, resurrection. They believed in resurrection. When Lazarus died, if you remember, and Jesus was speaking to Martha about resurrection, she said he will rise again on the last day. They, they believed in resurrection, you see. They believed it, but it was at the end of time. It was when history wrapped up. Then there would be resurrection. But what do you do with this? This is resurrection in the middle of history, not at the end. It means that when I say he's alive, he, in our humanness, he has brought the end of time into this present moment. And so here is time, tick-tock, 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 and in there the half-dead are pretending to be alive, but suddenly there's something else here. Here is one who is livingness, a human being who is livingness, who was dead and is now living inside time, but with the life that belongs to after time is finished. Time. I'm getting confused here. We're living in this here and now, and tick-tock, tick-tock is going on, but here is one who is living with a life that belongs to the future. But he's living it inside our time. Something new has happened. A human being. God became a true human being and that true human being has conquered death. That's why he walked out of the tomb. Not a ghost, not a phantom. Not a spirit idea, but a human being who could sit in your chair, make indents in the cushion, who could walk beside you on the road, who could eat your supper with you, who has conquered death. This human being has introduced something that's beyond our comprehension. A new kind of life has come into being in the old kind of life. And so he had said, now we understand it, sort of. He said, I am the resurrection. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes upon me shall never die. And just a few hours before this happened, he said to them, because I live, you are soon going to live too. That's the resurrection. The invasion into our time-space history of the very life of God in a human that has completely overcome death. And if overcome death, well, why was death here in the first place? Because of sin. And why was sin here? Because Satan deceived the race. Then that means if he's overcome death, he has dealt with sin, period. And if he's dealt with sin, he's dealt with the author of sin, Satan. This gets bigger by the minute. You see, if we believe everything that Jesus said and did back there in the Gospels, then it's, shall I say, seamless that he rose from the dead. I mean, really, you could see this coming. He, when he healed the sick, many times he used, the, he says, you know, he raised them up. Well, that word that was used there was the word for resurrection, as if anticipating this would happen. 
And he walked into a demon-infested environment and cursed them out and did so with a word. So you listen to his teaching and it's like listening to a teaching from another world, another dimension. So if you believed that it was, I say, seamless that he should rise from the dead, it's fitting. The trouble is, no one did believe it. Not really. Or they would have said they believed it, and as far as they knew, they did. But you see, the disciples had no file for this. Like all other Jews, they believed resurrection belonged at the end of time. And this one was talking, if they really heard him at all, it would only be confusion. He was talking about resurrection and people there after the resurrection who could talk about it. It's going to happen inside of time, not at the end of time. They, they had no file for it. And, and so they, they could marvel at what he did, but they couldn't even hear when he talked of resurrection because they had nowhere to put that. And of course, the temple, the religious mafia of the day, they heard him make claim to being God from God, equal with God. They said, blasphemy. Blasphemy, they'd already tried once to stone him to death and never got to first base on that. And so the temple convicted him of blasphemy. They also, in fact, though not mentioned, convicted him of getting in their way, of messing up the hold that they had on the temple. And so they, they said, we've got to crucify him, not just get rid of him. We've got to get rid of him in a way that will tell the world he's a criminal and to a Jew, crucify, crucify meant damn him to hell. He must be crucified so that forever the stigma of God curse is upon him. Now, the temple didn't believe. Even though they had reason to believe, they had evidence to believe, but they did not want to believe because it would have upset their entire business. And Rome, well... They, they were ambivalent. They, they'd heard enough. They'd t heard him talk about a kingdom. And anyone who talked about a kingdom was threatening the Caesar in Rome. And so, yeah, why not execute him as a criminal? Execute him for high treason. And so they executed him. Two courts. The temple religious court spat in his face and said, call yourself the son of God. And then ripped their garments and said, he's a blaspheming devil. And Rome, tired of pipsqueak peasants who thought they would be the next emperor, Pilate said, crucify him. So two courts. The highest religious court and certainly the highest human court said, crucify him. He is criminal. An imposter, a deceiver, a blasphemer. But then you see there is another court, the supreme court of the cosmos. And God the Father held court and declared into that death, darkness, where Jesus, who was God, who had assumed our humanity as his own forever, has now, as us and for us, gone into our death. 
and the world had said, you're the sinner of sinners. And the father spoke into that and said, you are my son, and I call you forth out of death. And I give you a name which is above every name, which is Lord. The one act of Adam, of disobedience, had carried the race into that death. And now God himself takes on form of man. The last Adam goes into that death in one act of obedience to the Father, obedience to love, and grabs a hold of us and said, I'm taking you out. And the Father says, come out, my son. Why? Because you have defeated Satan. You have put away sin by the sacrifice of yourself. And you have thus unraveled death. And death cannot hold you anymore. By all the legal of the creation, you are called forth by the Father. And Jesus, Jesus the Son, He's the one who chose to go into death because he loved us and came to get us. He's the one spoken of in Genesis 3.15 who shall crush the head of the serpent. And he went into death and he did it. And he took from Satan the keys of death and the grave and in his own authority rose from the dead. And the Holy Spirit made alive every cell of his body. And that deathless body came out of the tomb. And the court that made that decision, when the Father said, come forth, there was an earthquake that shook the whole area. And the decision of the temple court and the Roman court was reversed. What a reverse. This is no human court. This is nothing to go to an appeals court. This is God. God creator, God savior, God lover, who says you are wrong. This is my son, and he is the Messiah. I, I wouldn't like to have been Caiaphas or Annas or Pilate when they heard that. You really are on the wrong side, you know. You really did make the wrong decision. What is it? It means... If, if then, yes, the resurrection proves he is God from God, Son of God. And his name given is Lord, which is the Old Testament name for God. Then that resurrection, that God-man who is coming out of the tomb into the park, it means every claim he made, every word he spoke, every promise he made has been vindicated. Now, now, in that garden with Jesus risen from the dead, go back to the Gospels and hear every word he said and know this is God speaking. I can, I, with the resurrection, that proves it. He is the Messiah. He is the one who comes and puts his arms around us lost sheep and carries us. He is. He is the one who finds us coins and brings us back to where we belong. He is the one who embraces us in the far country. Yeah, he is. The one who seeks and saves that which is lost. He is the bread of life. He is. He rose from the dead, you see. He is the light of the world, and outside of him it's all darkness. He is the life, real life, abundance of life. 
He is the truth. He's the reality. He is the way to the Father. He is the source. He's the beginning. In himself, he he is a, a new creation, a totally new kind of existence. And to believe, trust him, is to enter into that new creation. It is to begin to participate in that new life. In him, he's God, you see, he's God. He's not some superman trying to twist the arm of God so that God will now grudgingly like us. This is God who so loved us that he joined us where we are and then in his own obedience and love carried us out of the tyranny of Satan and out of guilt and out of shame, out of its bondage carried us into this new kind of life and it's not into a new kind of law a new kind of regulations no i said life the law was given for dead people so that they would see their dead and see what life sort of looked like no he raises us and the life that came out of the tomb is that he puts the spirit of life, the Holy Spirit inside of us. What, what does it say, this, this one risen from the dead? It says that God accepts us into his heart. When I was growing up in the church I, I was part of, uh, the big thing was uh, on Sundays to call people to accept Jesus, which is okay. I, I don't want to be silly about it. Thousands of people entered into their new life that way. But really, if you want to get to the heart of it, it isn't that we accept Jesus. He accepted us. He rose from the dead and comes to you and me and says, I did it. And I did it for you. I've come to bring you into what I have accomplished for you. He accepted us. If I accept anything, I accept that he accepts me. I suppose I'd better read the text again. I almost forgot where we were there. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You shall be saved. Believe in your heart. The heart in the Bible, what's the heart? It's the very center of you. From whence all your words come and all your thoughts originate and all your actions and behavior find their concrete expression, your heart. As a man thinks in his heart, so he is. Out of the heart are the issues of life. So if I believe in my heart, it's not just a mental thing that I say, yeah, 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 it happened 2,000 years ago. No, to believe in my heart It means that the resurrection of Jesus, this person who is the resurrection, this person who in his own self is this totally new kind of life, he is actually imprinted into all of my life. My words, my thoughts, my imaginations, my behaviors, my decisions... He's imprinted into all the spheres of my living, whether it be my home life, my personal private life, my work life, my school life, my relationships. All of that is now joined, participating in his life. So that, as he said a few hours earlier to this, he said, I will be in you and you will be in me. You could say that like a garment in the dye, so we have been dyed. We've been colored. 
by the resurrection. So we've realized resurrection, Jesus' resurrection, is the very meaning of life. And if we believe that from our heart, we no longer fear death. How can you fear death when you are joined as one to the person that has crushed death and overcome it and said, whoever believes in me shall never die? Death only hurts those who are left behind, and even they sorrow not as others who have no hope. But for the person who is dying, truth is they are lifing into the very presence and fulfillment of this person, Jesus. Yeah, and the Bible says that he stripped Satan of his authority and delivered those who through fear of death were all their lifetime in bondage. Fear of death. Why, why is it you're afraid of money, finances, lay awake at night, worry, worry, worry? Because if you don't have money, you won't get food and shelter. If you don't have food and shelter, you'll die. Why are you afraid of sickness? Because sickness leads to death. Why are you afraid of spiders? Because if one bites you, you might die. I think point proved every fear on this planet goes back to death and Jesus has destroyed death. And we confess that with our mouth, he said. We confess it. And I've said it enough times on this program. Confess is to say together with Say together with, with your mouth. You say together with the Father what the Father says about Jesus and therefore about you. The court of Rome and the temple said he is a sinner, imposter, criminal, blasphemer. We say what the highest court of the universe said, that he is the Son of God, God from God. He is love incarnate. He is the word of God's love for us. He is the seeker and the savior of that which is lost. And so I say thank you and I accept his acceptance of me. And the result, says the scripture, is righteousness, which is that Old Testament covenant word, which means that you are walking in perfect harmony. Love, covenant love. And you believe it. And there you walk together, united in covenant harmony. Righteousness is the word. Salvation means delivered from the tyrant's oppression and delivered to the inheritance of joy and peace that the Father has prepared. Well, there it is. I said it's simple, in that if we're believers, you've been saying amen all the way through. If you're not a believer, then I trust by now, You've switched confessions, no longer confessing with the temple and with the Caesar of Rome, but with God the Father and declaring that Jesus is Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you and for you to accept your acceptance. And those who were raised in a confessing family, and it's just been part of your life that this that I've said is true, May these words be used by the Holy Spirit to make it intimately personal to you that he's alive for you, in you, that the family confession has become your confession. And for all of us, join what the early church called the resurrection laugh. Christ is risen. And they all respond, he is risen indeed. And then they would laugh for sheer joy. 
but the reign of the tyrant is over, and their life henceforth is lived in the life that cannot die. I trust this has blessed you, and I do believe we'll have to pursue this. Many things I've said here tonight have been but headings of what I've got to say much more about. And so I shall be back with more on this glorious subject. And now the blessing of God, who is almighty love, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, His richest blessing of life be in you and with you, that you shall live this day, this week, Live your life without shame, without guilt, knowing that Christ indeed is your life. So I bless you, and so it is. Amen.